I think I just didn't want that period of my life to define me. I, you know, it had been really, really difficult for, you know, so many reasons. And I think it, looking back, it was probably my lowest ebb ever. And I thought, you know, I can either sit back and let things continue to just happen to me and self-implode, or it's almost like you, you can then create problems in all areas of your life or start trying to take back control. And I mean, it was really tough. You know, I hadn't particularly appreciated what it's like having serious anxiety and, you know, going through depression. And I just kept thinking if I just keep putting one foot in front of the other, I take it day by day and every day was a struggle, but I thought I need to just keep doing things and something is going to happen. If I just keep doing something will happen. And I think that's, you know, a real lesson for me in, in life and something that I, I love that I can sort of pass on to people now because it does seem really hopeless at times and you know when you're so in your head and you're so fueled by by heart and pain and you don't really see you can't really see that future unless you are continuing to create some sort of future for yourself i think you do find yourself in a really dangerous place and I'd say it's probably one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of is the, the resilience and I mean that comes from having a Glaswegian mom and a Pakistani dad because you know they don't entertain uh, oh I'm not feeling well and I'm not, I'm not feeling right <laughs> you have to get on with it in life there's not a lot you know they're very supportive emotionally and I love them very much but they also have instilled this fight in me. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Zara Janjua is a successful multi-hyphen TV professional, essentially meaning her daily grind includes roles as a journalist, presenter, producer, director, filmmaker, writer, comedian, actor, course facilitator and event host. A BAFTA, NTA and RTS award-winning broadcaster of Scottish Pakistani heritage, Zara has presented national news, daytime TV, comedy and cookery shows for the BBC, ITV and STV. Zara is part of the BBC Comedy Writers Room, currently developing several scripts with production companies. She has also been working with BBC Studios on a series of comedy shorts, which she both writes and stars in. Recently named one of Britain's most talented up-and-coming women, Zara was a finalist for the Women of the Future Awards in 2020. Recognition of the success she has achieved working with multiple income streams to build a broad portfolio both in front of and behind the camera. A proactive mentor for young women and minority groups, as well as an advocate for equality, women's rights and mental health, Zara is an ambassador for several charities, operating on a 50-50 model, dedicating half her time to philanthropic filming projects. I grew up in Glasgow in Scotland and we grew up in a place called Kelvindale in a tenement flat 
and uh, initially it was, I mean, I loved my childhood because there were lots and lots of other kids in the block that I was able to play with and we got you know, released into the back garden and just let out all day. And I was very, very close with my older brother. He was, he is the best big brother anyone could ever wish for. He was really inclusive and always looking after me. And we just play, my memory of my childhood is really playing outside with my, with my brother and all the kids from the, the block. But my mum and dad, I think they've got a fantastic story and I'd love to write about their story one day because they came from such different backgrounds. My mother was brought up in what she calls the slums of Glasgow, which is <laughs> a, place, a place called Bridgeton, which sounds a lot like Bridgerton, but believe me, it couldn't be any different. Not as, not as saucy? Or... <laughs> no, I mean, I haven't asked and she wouldn't tell me. If I did. Um, no, I think, I mean, there were machete gangs in those days in Glasgow and, you know, she was um, very poor. You know, she had to leave school when she was quite young to support the family, but she's just an absolute champion. And she, instead of taking a job working in factories or anything, joined the army and went to travel the world. So my mum's had the most amazing life. And my father was brought up in a village in Pakistan. And so the fact that they found each other and came together, I think is incredible. And it gave me a really great insight into life, uh, two different lives, two different cultures, two different backgrounds growing up. I really appreciated that diversity in my background, but you know, with the good comes the bad. And mm. I think sometimes, especially where we were initially growing up, we were targeted a little bit for racism and, and either you're too brown or sometimes too white. You know, I remember being at mosques and things, uh, we were sent to learn how to read the Quran and learn Arabic. And we were often called goras, you know, we were always made to feel sort of on the outside, which now that I'm older, I can really appreciate because I think there's a great strength in not fitting in. You know, you find your own, you find your own way. But when I was younger, I wasn't really allowed or afforded many freedoms. My father was quite sort of strict with where we went and he didn't ever want us walking about the place. So most of my time was spent working on sort of creative things in my house. I loved reading. I loved writing. I loved doing art. My mom and I were very close and we used to do crafts and things together. And as I say, I spent a lot of time with my brothers, but I do remember my childhood being quite lonely. <laughs> Just me and my books, me and my books. Children can be quite brutally honest, can't they, as well? There's an innocence associated to it. But what was school life like for you? Were you, are you saying, obviously, you spent quite a lot of time on your own, but did you enjoy school? Did you get stuck into it or was it a different kind of story? I, I think I did. I mean, I was definitely a bit of a square, I think, at school. <laughs> I haven't heard that for such a long time. Oh, that's how we swear. <laughs> I remember I think it was in primary one and my mum had given me some advice for going to school and sort of said, just don't get out your seat unless your teacher says it's okay and always put your hand up to answer a question. The teacher had sort of on the first day said, oh, kids, look, what's that outside? And there was a rainbow and all the kids got up and ran to the window and they were shouting everything from it. And I'm sitting in my seat with my hand up. Honestly, what was I thinking? So, <laughs> no wonder I spent so much time alone. I, I, I loved being in school because I really loved learning. And I was so close with my older brother that the moment he left to go to school, I was just desperate to be there. I was just desperate to, to go and to learn. And that sort of love of learning has continued in my life. And I, I feel like I'm always on this journey of self-development. And I think that does come from just my love of being at school when I was much younger anyway I love being at school but you know as I got older I think that not fitting in 
really made me question my identity. I felt like I always had lots of identity issues. Who was I? Who was allowed to be? My father was very strict. And so I wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable being so sort of open and honest about the experiences I was having and the feelings I was having. And, you know, a large portion of my childhood was sort of spent in this teenage angst of, you know, not being allowed (laughs) out to do anything and listening to Travis and, you know, (laughs) just having this feeling of waiting for my life to start. I always remember just this overwhelming feeling. You know, Kim, when holidays just went on for yeah, hundred percent. I remember like six weeks lasted as long as a year. I remember summer holidays being the best thing ever because it was just an eternity before you had to go back. It was amazing. Now that this is where we're different, you see, oh. because I was like, oh my gosh, this is going on forever. Can we just get back to school? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I maybe that's that was different. I think we we also weren't really going on elaborate holidays at all. My Mm. father had his own business and so he was very aware of having phone signal, for example. So we used to go on lots of caravan holidays and, you know, lots of cheap and cheerful holidays where we're with the family. So I guess when we did come back from the holidays, I would hear these amazing adventures and stories that everyone else was having and everyone else just seemed to be having an absolute ball. And I was genuinely (laughs) in my bedroom listening to Travis and drawing and writing. So having lots of angst moments I think I, one of my biggest enjoyments of the summer holidays I was very lucky to grow up in the countryside so I think I used to just get lost in woods and stuff like that because we never really went on holidays either so I suppose your experiences of growing up in Glasgow sound like they were a bit more I don't know not restrictive is the wrong word but it seems like you were very much aware of your circumstances and your surroundings and that kind of infiltrated the things that you were doing and what you were into and the things that you maybe started to develop as because obviously you're in the creative world now as those kind of passions would that be fair yeah I mean I think I became very self-aware quite early and not having the ability to go out and live adventures and believe me I'm very grateful for that now you know my parents definitely guarded me from a lot of things that I could have experienced far too early and far too young and at the time I hated them for it (laughs) and now that I'm older you know and I have a niece that's 11 and I think what a blessing it was to have people to look out for me and to, to shield me from from that but yeah it certainly got my imagination going and one thing I learned back then was as long as you have an imagination you'll you'll never be lonely you know, you always have a busy mind and adventures going on. But I was just so desperate for life to begin. Now, I've kind of rolled my eyes when I first heard this term, multi-hyphen, and think it's very much of the moment. But I know, in all fairness, there is nothing better that can describe you as you are now, because you're a journalist, presenter, producer, director, filmmaker, writer, comedian, actor, course facilitator and event host. So that's quite a long list of things that you do but I suppose first and foremost you're self-employed I would take it and there probably comes a point where you you made that decision to be the master of your own destiny somewhat how did that come about and how have you entered into all these different lines of inquiry I suppose uh I mean I I love a pigeonhole (laughs) I haven't been able to to do it for myself until now and it was I read a a fantastic book by Emma Gannon called The Multi-Hyphen Method and for the first time ever I thought oh wow that's what I am I can finally say that this is what I am but I think I'm still defining really what it is that I am and I hope that always evolves and constantly changes but the truth is I 
have never been the best employee and I'll be completely upfront about that and Kim just full disclosure is that I believe I've been sacked around 15 times That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but but I think there's there's been multiple reasons for that you know and I think I'm very strong-willed I'm, I'm an independent thinker I'm a creative thinker and I like to have freedom and flexibility and I've had real issues coming up against that within my career and, and, and over time. It finally got to the point, I mean, I was sort of made redundant and went through some big life changes a few years ago and thought, you know, finally I get the chance to move to London and chase some dreams that I didn't think I was going to have the chance to do in life or chance to chase. And I'd been working in a few jobs down here and it got to the point that everything else had started snowballing and I was receiving so many opportunities and I, I was desperate to continue doing a lot of charity work and work in philanthropy and things that kind of made my heart sing a little bit and the problem when you're in a staff job is that your bosses don't always understand that and you're not always afforded the privilege of being an individual you know that's the point in businesses that's how they many of them operate and run so I got to the point where I had no more holidays left I'd taken all my holidays to do charity work or to do extra work or um, you know to do gigs even comedy gigs that I had booked and I had not had a holiday. Now, when I told my father this, being Pakistani, he was like, mashallah, very good. <laughs> you know, he loves, loves the idea that I don't take holidays and that I'm so hardworking. And I definitely get that from my family. We are a family of hardworking people. So, you know, thank him for that every day. But I just got to the point where it was becoming unmanageable and I really had to make the decision finally if I was to jump and go out on my own and it's been the the best decision I ever made and I say that when four months into it I went to Nepal to do a documentary about marginalized and disabled women living out there I wanted to every year dedicate myself for maybe a month just to doing one big filming project for free and to dedicate my time and my skills to to a charity or a cause that was really close to my heart so I did this and then returned to lockdown where all my gigs and everything had been, mm. been cancelled and thought wow what a challenge this is going to be interesting so I really had to just make it work but I find that I kind of wish I'd done it earlier Kim, I really do. I wish that I had just been brave enough to take that risk and jump ship and go alone because I am a much better client and much better sort of boss and master of my own destiny than, than I ever was an employee because I really care about the work I do. So I, I think that, you know, passion drives everything. And when you have passion for, for what you do, then everything feels easy, mm, you know, a leap of faith almost that you had to feel the fear but do it anyway because it felt like the right thing you have to run towards the fear yeah like you do that. i like that so you have now you dedicate half your time to philanthropic filming projects like a 50 50 model that's right isn't it and also i know that comedy plays a huge part in your vocational work so with those two things in mind in particular is there a standout moment or maybe a person that you would say has helped mold you and your interests down this avenue and would be like you know something that when you think about it as to how you progress but also where you started have influenced you in a way um i've given this woman a shout out for years now and i hope i never stop because i love her so much uh when i was working for stv scottish television my background had been as a journalist i finished a master's degree in journalism and went to i, I was in the innocence project and working for the scottish human rights commission but you know when i finally 
got a job it was in the oil and gas industry and I lasted about two months <laughs> I was it was awful and yes that was one of the 15 sackages or sacking <laughs> <laughs> so it was awful and I ended up in Aberdeen in a flat with my my partner and I just thought I'm ruined why have I moved all the way up to, to Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland and now I don't have a job and I was very very fortunate that Scottish Television were looking for editors online so I joined them to write initially but it was the first time I was around broadcast and I was so fascinated by it all and I was just really intrigued by everything that was going on and you know the pace of it and they were always looking for someone to stay late to do the auto queue and I just started staying after my shift to do that and you know being generally interested in, in everything that was going on and after a while Andrea Brimer who was one of the sort of anchors one of the main presenters for the program said to me listen I can see that you're doing all of this extra work and you know we don't really have anything an initiative set up that's going to help you or upskill you or get you into this so what can we do and she took her time I love her so much for it she took her time to teach me how to present and to get me in front of the camera to get me news reading and within a few months I had a, a great showreel together that I was then using to apply for jobs internally and um, within a matter of with honestly within six months I had a job as a newsreader in Edinburgh and I moved to Edinburgh to become a newsreader after just six months with no experience whatsoever and became a news presenter and a news reporter I mean the first night I found out I was doing it I was you know like absolutely no problem can't wait ran to the toilet was sick for my mum <laughs> I was crying I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this um but it worked out really well and I think you know throwing yourself into stuff and running towards the fear do really do reap the benefits from it so Andrea Brimer was just if it hadn't been for her I would never have had the experience that I've had. I wouldn't know anything about the world of TV, really. I don't know where I would be, but I'm really fortunate. And I thank everyone that I've met along the way who has helped me because, as I say, there's been so many women, especially in the industry, who've really helped me. And I feel such responsibility now to pass that on mm. uh, because... I do hear horror stories and I hear people say that the media is not great and women aren't always supporting each other. Well, I think that's nonsense. I've met so many of them. And I think if you're positive and you have a good attitude and sometimes if you just ask for help, it does come to you. So that like law of attraction that I'm, I'm kind of feeding into now, but I do believe that. I do believe it. It's the importance of role models and guiding lights is, is invaluable, yeah. isn't it? Because we all need you know, someone to steer us almost or just to offer advice. And it sounds like... The lady you're talking about is just, she recognised that you were keen and eager and willing and she just took you under her wing, which sounds like she's a phenomenal person, but there needs to be more people like that. Or maybe just a bit more transparency around what's available and not feeling like you're a failure when you're asking for help and things like that. I think everyone needs a first chance or a first shot, don't they? And that's what she gave me. And I, I feel... Uh, right now, I'm becoming very aware of the fact that given the current climate with coronavirus, with this world pandemic, mm. that nobody is, it's going to be much harder for people to get that foot up. And it's going to be really hard to get that initial experience because so many productions are having to you know, streamline their crew members and where you know they might have had a placement even just to shadow or to you know watch with a director or whatever it was a day or a week no tv companies i'm currently aware of are offering that and it's all remote so it's very very difficult to make those connections and i am painfully aware actually of many women currently in the industry many young women or many students that i know and i'm working with and mentoring that it's tough it's yeah. really tough so as i say i think that over 
overwhelmingly I feel that responsibility now to pass on some of the the kindness and the love that I've been given over the years by people so it's just to find new ways and new routes at the moment and across all the work you've done you've done such extraordinary and varied things is there any one thing in particular that you would say stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of Probably, I think writing has always been in my heart. It's been something that I've always wanted to do. And so naturally I studied business management as an undergraduate degree. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> that Doesn't was, need to, it's fine. <laughs> thank you for saying that. Uh, isn't it amazing that, you know, you, you know experience is a wasted experience. And, you know, despite doing that degree, it's now coming into play that, that the skills that I learned within my business degree, I've gone on to do lots of work for banks. And there's some exciting work coming up with a, with a bank in particular where there's lots of opportunities there because of that. But when I finished my business degree, I sort of I got a job working in a rum bar in Bermuda I mean my parents were so proud they were just <laughs> a bit baffled as to what I was doing and it was because it wasn't really what was making my heart sing you know mm. um, so at the age of 32 when I 33 when I moved to London I thought my life was kind of crumbling a little bit I'd been through quite a sort of traumatic experience and in a relationship and with work and stuff and I just was having a bit of anxiety and a bit of depression and I thought this it, it's all or nothing I need to go for this and and I decided to write a pilot for a sitcom uh, an idea that I'd had for a while um, that I've been playing with in my head and I had never written, written a screenplay before and thought I'm gonna just have a look at roughly what it looks like and I'll give it a bash and I saw that the BBC Comedy Writers Room was open for submissions at the time, which is great because it's open to, to everyone, anyone and everyone. So I submitted it to that and I was so embarrassed of how bad I thought it was. I thought I was going to be blacklisted by the BBC. I thought that they would put me on some list somewhere and just be like, don't touch this woman, don't go near her, she doesn't have a clue. So I enlisted in a screenwriting class and it was just, I was honestly amazed that I got into the BBC Comedy Writers Room. And, you know, it's, it's incredible because when you look at the number of people that do apply for it and the amazingly talented people. And what it showed me was that, you know, first of all, if you want to do something, just do it. Don't keep putting up barriers in front of you and, and you know things that you should do before you do something else or you think that you have all these steps you need to take before you get there just do it and actually mm -hmm. writing is all about your own individual voice and if you if you if you start researching too much the way that everyone else is doing something it does dilute what you have to bring that's a bit different and a bit special so it just gave me the confidence that i needed to start pursuing that career and in two years that part of my life that i was always just I knew that it, it was something I really wanted to do and you know I was winning competitions when I was a kid and my dad had like a schedule drawn up that's typical Pakistani father you know we'll have we'll <laughs> drop a schedule and we'll make you into a star an author by the time you're, you're 16 and um, it really had put me off so it, probably my biggest achievement really is that I've followed that passion and dream and that I'm so happy to see that it's going well it's going really well I think it also goes to show that there's there's never a right time. You can't wait for a right time. And also you can't restrict yourself either. I know a lot of people like, oh, I'll give it another month and then I'll stop. And it's like, well, what if something happens after that month? Or what if happen, something happens the day, the day after you've decided that you, you're ending whatever it is that you're investing yourself into? But I think also from like listening to your story, it goes to show that when the chips are down and when you think there's no way through it sometimes that the most brilliant things can just 
spring out of not nowhere because obviously you'd already made various endeavors in this arena but you know you you probably had more gumption and more tenacity at that point than you probably realized I think I just didn't want that period of my life to define me you know it had been really really difficult for you know so many reasons and I think it looking back it was probably my lowest ebb ever and I thought you know I can either sit back and let things continue to just happen to me and self-implode or it's almost like you you can then create problems in all areas of your life or start trying to take back control and I mean it was really tough you know, I hadn't particularly appreciated what it's like having serious anxiety and, you know, going through depression. And I just kept thinking if I just keep putting one foot in front of the other, I take it day by day and every day was a struggle. But I thought I need to just keep doing things and something is going to happen. If I just keep doing something will happen. And I think that's, you know, a real lesson for me in, in life and something that I, I love that I can sort of pass on to people now because it does seem really hopeless at times and you know when you're so in your head and you're so fueled by by heart and pain and you don't really see you can't really see that future unless you are continuing to create some sort of future for yourself i think you do find yourself in a really dangerous place and i'd say it's probably one of the things i'm, I'm most proud of is the, the resilience and i mean that comes from having a Glaswegian mom and a Pakistani dad because you know they don't entertain uh oh I'm not feeling well and I'm not, I'm not feeling right <laughs> you have to get on with it in life there's not a lot you know they're very supportive emotionally and I love them very much but they also have instilled this fight in me and this desire to kind of keep making things better and not to let anything get you down that much my mom used to say when I was growing up to count my blessings it was something she used to say every day just count your blessings hen count your blessings name them one by one and she'd make us do that if we were feeling down and we're, she'd come in speak to us at night before we went to sleep and we'd have to run through all the things that we were grateful for which is now something that people do you know they write yeah. gratitude lists yeah. And it was exactly that. Um, and I, I still do that, you know, when I'm feeling a little bit sorry for myself, you know, give myself a bit of a, a slap and say, come mm. on, look at everything else that's happening around you. Yeah, I hear people say you should reframe it in saying, I get to do rather than I have to do. I get to do this. I don't have to do it. You know, you, you're lucky enough just to get to walk down the street, go and get a coffee or whatever. You know, even the, the simplicity of things, you still get to do it. You don't have to do it. And I think reframing resilience is all kind of bundled in together. But yeah, it's quite, it's quite remarkable to listen to your story. It's the same as kind of could have and should have, right? You know, you, yeah. sh you should have done something or you could have done something. I often think the same. How did you first hear about the Women of the Future programme? Um, what inspired you to get involved? I was hosting uh, an event for NatWest and it was the multicultural events team who'd put on the South Asian Heritage Month event. And I had the pleasure of interviewing Pinky Lalani, which was amazing because I actually had to do a research call with her in advance of the event. And I knew so much about her. I was clearly, you know, managing my expectations in terms of the time that I was going to have with her. I was very conscious of she's a busy woman. She's got lots going on, um, you know, 10 minutes and make sure you're, you're being aware of her time. Oh my goodness, Kim, when she answered the phone, 
she told me that she was just she'd she'd made a point of doing everything she needed to do so she could sit down and relax and enjoy the conversation <laughs> and we spoke for 45 minutes we spoke about everything we weren't just talking about the event which is what i had assumed we would be talking about you know she was so interested in me and what i'd done and she was sharing information about her life so i met pinky and when pinky finished when we finished the event she said, you know, that I run these awards, you should have a look at them. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to enter them, but it's really just out of respect and kindness because she's been so decent with me and she's brought this to my attention. And I, I honestly just thought, I didn't think anything else of it. I just thought, you know, it's a good thing to do to enter. So to find out that I was a finalist was just mind blowing, really. Mm -hmm. I did not expect it at all. Congratulations as well, because you were highly commended, weren't you? Yeah, thank you. That was a cherry on top. Cherry on top. Yeah. <laughs> Not just shortlisted. Highly <laughs> commended. Very well done. I have some quick fire questions. Are you ready? Oh gosh, yeah. Okay, let's go. What would you describe as your greatest success? Probably all the love that I have in my life at the moment. I feel really grateful for for that just now. And I mean, I gosh, I could look at some other things that just make me really happy but I have a really great friendship group and my family and I are so close and I think over this last year it's been the thing that I'm most proud of in my life in general across the board that I have people to support and people that support me and you know I'm, I'm isolating at the moment and one of my friends turned up with a big bunch of flowers at my door just to cheer Aww. me up a little bit and I thought you know I, I really love my friends and I really love that support network that I have around me so uh, I hope that's I hope that's the answer an acceptable answer and it's that's a good answer career. that's good good and your greatest failure oh I mean I tend not to think about failures I mean believe me I have many of them and I think in the interest of being on this lifelong journey of self-discovery and self-improvement i can look back on all the things that i think that i could have done differently and could have done better maybe people who i've i've hurt or mistakes that i've made and i know that i've learned something from them and i know that i wouldn't be who i was today without them so i find it really hard to define something fully as a mistake it's kind of like that catch 22 if you set out to fail at something and you fail does that mean that you fail or you succeed i don't know the learning experience. Yeah. Pin it as that. The mantra of the woman of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? Um, I mean, I am very aware of my, my values and especially now that I'm self-employed, how to integrate those into the work that I do. I look at the skill set that I have and how I can apply that to, to make some sort of change or to do something that improves someone's life. I became a journalist because of that. I genuinely thought I was going to change the world. I was thinking I'd be on dispatches, I would be doing all these <laughs> programs and, and really be a truth teller. That was what I, I wanted to do. So to find myself now doing comedy and to be working behind the camera and have all these other things, it hasn't stopped. That sort of burning desire has not stopped. And there's other ways now that I'm seeing that I can apply that, you know, I think diversity is so good for, for business. And I think I want to, you know, see more women of color being in my industry. And I, it's at my, my power to, to help them and to do that. I think being always being aware 
of people that are worse off than yourself is a great way to live life and always to be aware of how your decisions will impact on people who are perhaps less well off is always the way that I try to make my decisions and to help people. So I hope that's, is that right, kindness and collaboration? Does that? Yeah, definitely. Question? <laughs> is there anything that scares you? So I have this theory that because I was quite anxious for a long time, people think that, I mean, when you are anxious, you either live in the future or in the past. And when you undertake quite high risk activities, it forces you into the present. So, you know, a lot of people think that you, people with anxiety might avoid any risky situations. And I definitely do gravitate towards them. You know, when I was working on TV, I was swimming with sharks, doing bungee jumps, skydives, marathons, anything that was anything at all that, that kind of gave me a little bit of fear. Um, I don't actually think I feel fear anymore. I think there's a fine line between fear and excitement. And especially when you work in live TV, you try and fill yourself into thinking that that fear, that horrible feeling in your gut when mm. your, your PA is counting down from 10 and you're about to go live and uh, you tell yourself you're excited. And I think over the years, that confusion has, has settled in, uh, which I love because I don't want to live my life in fear at all. I think so often we make decisions based on fear and I try to live my life honestly and, and grab opportunities. If anything, I think maybe at the moment I'm beginning to realize I'm so close to achieving this childhood dream of being a writer, of having something commissioned and, and on TV and, you know, that's or a book published that I kind of hope that it does all come true. Um, but I, I don't think it's a fear just yet. Do you think those early adrenaline junkie type things that you did fed in and became anxiety or are they two separate things and do you know how to like compartmentalize them is it are they one and the same or not really oh my goodness kim you're, di you're digging no, i'm going deep, deep. Going deep. Yeah. <laughs> listening to you and thinking like oh maybe <laughs> i mean I, I haven't thought about it but i do really enjoy um a bit of excitement and mm. any activities that i do have to challenge myself and push myself to so you know later this year i'm going to kilimanjaro to climb kilimanjaro for a, a charity and i read that i was like is that, is that right that sounds amazing but yeah well i hope i'm gonna go but i mean it's in september so i'm holding Just out fingers for crossed it. I, I mean, there probably is a link to it, but it's now so ingrained in who I am and, and my personality that I don't think it's ever going to change. And if Mount Kilimanjaro isn't enough, um, what's left on your to-do list? Oh my goodness, there's so much that's on my, my to-do list. I mean, everything. I'm very focused at the moment on writing a um, book. I've had so many ideas for books and although screenwriting's really taken off, uh, novels are definitely something on my radar and something I want to achieve this year. I'd love to set up a production company and actually the more that I think about it to create opportunities for um, for women and black and ethnic minority people and support them, it just makes sense. But also to continue doing this philanthropic filming every year, this one project that I'm doing, it would make such great sense to incorporate that into a production company, to make it a thing, to have a competition, to offer it to charities that need it most where we can help tell their stories and raise their voices and it would become a really coveted prize I can see it in my mind's eye but I mean honestly I want to do a safari I want to learn how to roller skate play guitar see Machu Picchu the Arctic the Northern Lights live in a Buddhist temple I'd love to learn about astronomy I'd love to be better at maths and learn French or win an Oscar or make a million I mean I really there's so much that I would I would like to do in life 
I wouldn't bet against you. I think you could probably go and do it all, to be, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. Zara, thank you so much. It's been brilliant speaking to you and getting to know you better. And I'm sure you've enlightened the audience no end. So thank you very much for your time. It's been so nice to meet you, Kim. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.